boredom. My, uh, when, when my kids asked me what I was going to talk about this weekend, and I told them, I said, that's great, Dad, you're an expert. <laughs> I, I reminded them, though, that it is a talk on boredom, and it's not a boring talk. And there's a difference. At least I hope there's a difference. Um, this is a talk that's just sort of been rattling around in my brain for a, a few years now. And it, it's not one that I am sure I will bring cohesion to, uh, that it will be a tight, uh, well-reasoned argument, if you will. It, it's a talk that is um, sort of from the gut. It's, it's, a, it's an impression, I guess is the way to say it. It's an impression that is born from having a sense in myself and in other guys that I can't find the buttons to get guys moving. You know, we're, we're, we're meeting in Bible studies. We're talking about God and you know, we're hearing guys like Yee and Walt and, um, you know, as Andy said, I, I came to these retreats and, you know, I cleaned up my act for three months and then, you know, I was right back in the same place and, you know, it's just, just nothing's really, really popping for me. And my sense is that that is... When men have that problem in their relationship with God, that it, it is in part at least related to our culture. Now, let, let me elaborate on what I mean by that. The word boredom, the word bore, never occurred in any of the ancient languages of the world. Not one had that concept in their language. Not only that, the word is not in the Bible. Now, the Bible uses the word bore in the sense of Sarah bore Abraham a son, or he bore our iniquities, but not in the sense that we're talking about. So, I went to the Oxford English Dictionary, and I thought, I need to find out where this word came from since the old guys didn't know anything about it. Now, the Oxford English Dictionary, for those of you who are not familiar with it, is a dictionary of etymology. That is, it talks about the origin of words, where they came from. The word bore, according to the, and again, in this sense, appeared sometime after 1750. Think about that. In the history of our language, it did not appear until sometime after 1750. It did not appear in written form until 1766. And that was... The first known recording of that word is in a letter from the Earl of March written to Jesse G. Selwyn II. And 
the line is this. Augustus Hervey and Lord Cadogan are in a long bore. First recorded instance of that word. The word bored, bored, did not occur until 1823. Bored, 1823. And that appears in Lord's By Lord Byron's work, Don Juan. Society is now one polished horde formed of two mighty tribes, the Boers and the Board. 1823. The word boredom first appeared in 1852. 1852, Charles Dickens' Bleak House. Speaking of his chronic malady of boredom. Guys, this business of boredom is a new phenomenon in the history of the world. I am not a historian. I'm not a epistemologist. But my sense is that it has an awful lot to do with the Enlightenment. Now, the Enlightenment, if for those of you who remember back in the bad old days of school, occurred in the 18th century. And what happened at that time was, guys said, listen, in, in Western civilization, we have been dominated by Christians. We've been dominated by God. God has been at the center of our universe. And we think that needs to change. We're going to put man at the center of the universe. And that is precisely what they did. Reason reigned supreme. Faith died and reason took over. And simultaneously, the malady of boredom appears. Now, what happened in the, eight, in the 19th century, the century after the beginning of the Enlightenment, was the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution created, on a mass scale, leisure time. If you had asked any of our forefathers what leisure time meant, he'd have looked at you with a blank look, the same way he would have looked at you if you'd, you'd asked him about boredom. That combination of putting man at the center of the world and leisure time is what produced boredom. Now, let me offer some definitions of the word. This is the American Heritage Dictionary. To tire with dullness, repetition, or tediousness. The New English Dictionary defines it to suffer a lack of interest in something. In the Oxford English Dictionary, a fit of sulks, a dull time. Now, there are related words. They aren't quite the same as boredom, but they come up in the same conversation. Words like tiredness, fatigue, futility, hopelessness, 
depression, unfulfilled. I have guys talk, come to me and, and talk to me about their careers. They say, my career is unfulfilling. And so I go to my Bible and look up the chapters on fulfillment. And I can't find one reference to a person being fulfilled. Not one. Now, there are two verses that Bill Asdale is going to read for us that you might say are in the ballpark. Bill, if you would read Second, uh, I'm sorry, Psalm 145.9 and then 2 Thess 1.11. Okay, this is. Psalm 145, 9. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. And then 2 Thess 1, 11. To this end also, we pray for you always, that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. Yeah. Fulfill desire. Now, guys, the fulfillment of desire and the fulfillment of a person are two completely different things. Ask any man who's ever gotten what he wants. Your desire might be fulfilled, but you're not. Seeking fulfillment is a fast track to hell. That's a colossally dumb thing to do. The thing I hear over and over again also is, I'm not happy. I'm not happy. My life does not make me happy. And so I go to my Bible again, and I look for reasons to be happy. Jesus says, well, you're happy when you're poor in spirit. You're happy when you're mourn. You're happy when you're gentle. You're happy when you're persecuted. And so I ask myself, where does that come from? Where does the notion that I ought to be happy comes from? And I don't know if you guys had to do this when you were in school, but I remember um, somewhere in grade school or junior high, somewhere around there, memorizing the preamble to the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that we are endowed by our Creator, that all men are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Remember those words? self-evident that we're endowed by our Creator with certain rights. So again, I go to my Bible to look up what my rights are. And there are, in fact, guys, three entire chapters written on the subject. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 9, and 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 8 says, give up your rights for the sake of the weaker brother. 
1 Corinthians 9 says, give up your rights for the sake of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 10 says, give up your rights for the sake of your neighbor. And that's the end of the discussion. Now, we are all interested in our own personal happiness, our own fulfillment of our rights. But that is something that we did not learn from our Bibles. That is something that you and I have drunk deeply from our cultural well. And I'm here to suggest to you guys that 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 kind of thinking is precisely what leads one to boredom. If you believe you are here to be happy and fulfilled, if you're really lucky, boredom will happen, happen to you. But there are a lot worse things can happen to you, too. Boredom's just one of the better th- of those things. So, are we together so far? Any questions or comments? By the way, I, um, I, I, I wish I... I had Lee's money to be able to, you know, hand it out for guys who could coat the, script, the scriptures, you know. But uh, I'm a dermatologist. I'm not a not a stockbroker. And, and just for the record, that business about I'm running out of cash. The guy's rich as Rockefeller. I mean, he has got so much back there. I suggest you start working him. <laughs> You ready to move on or you have questions or comments so far? All right, we're going we're gonna to quickly touch down on Ecclesiastes. Now, Walt talked about it last night, and so I don't intend to spend much time here at all. But let me suggest to you that the book of Ecclesiastes is an unveiling. How many of you guys saw the first Matrix movie? Okay? So hopefully you'll, you'll explain to your buddy who hasn't seen the movie what I'm talking about. If you remember, the premise of that movie is that all of the, the things that we call reality is in fact computer generated. And that reality is that all of us are right at this moment sitting in this huge holding tank and machines are using the energy generated by our bodies to run the machines. And in order to keep us alive so that we produce a maximum amount of energy, they produce this matrix, and so you and I think something real is going on. Ecclesiastes is the matrix. Ecclesiastes says to you and to me, All of this stuff that you think is so important is wiffle dust. There is a reality, but it's not here. 
And guys, what happens, if you remember in, in, that, in that movie, when the guy figured out what reality really was, remember one of the characters in the movie says, man, I want to go back into the Matrix. I do not like reality. I hate it. I am willing to live a lie rather than face reality. And guys, I suggest to you that that is the temptation of every Christian man. You and I hate like crazy to face reality. And Ecclesiastes is telling us the truth. That everything that I was taught to value is baloney. My value system is as screwed up as it could possibly be. The things that are really important are not the things that I was told are important. That is what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. Now, Ecclesiastes is a book of reason. It is what it is. is it's a book of philosophy. Best I understand it, in the whole book, there are two or three verses that even suggest faith exists, and those are in the last chapter, the last three verses of the book. Those three verses suggest faith. All the rest of the book is living a life based on reason. And guys, if those last three verses of chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes are not true, I'm telling you, you're hosed. Because once you read Ecclesiastes and see life as it really is, you have got three options. Option number one is to do what the guy in the matrix did and live the entire rest of your life as a lie. Option number two is to put a hole, uh, put a hole in your head. And option number three is to fill the hole in your heart with the only person in the universe who can do it. Only three options you got. Bill, would you read those... Uh, First three verses of the chapter. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? Now you get the, the sense from verse 2 that there's a theme. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I can count. Vanity, 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 vanity. Five times in one verse, vanity. Now, the book can be turned into a syllogism. A syllogism is just a deductive reasoning tool. You reason from the general to the specific. The syllogism is this. All labor is under the sun. Second premise. All under the sun is vanity. Conclusion. All labor is vanity. 
you need to define two words, labor and vanity. Vanity is easy. Vanity means emptiness, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. By labor, he means every human endeavor. Not just work, but everything. Now, I'm not going to talk about any of the specifics here, but I'll suggest to you that you, you may go through uh, the book and decide that there are more or less, but I have wrote down, say, uh, well, you count them. These are the labors that Solomon goes through. Number one, wisdom. Number two, pleasure. Number three, power. Number four, philanthropy. Number five, work. Number six, family. And number seven, natural religion. Those are the labors that men do. And by natural religion, I mean that which one can deduce about God from creation. Not what God reveals to us in the Bible, but what I can deduce by observation. Those are the labors, and Solomon says they're all meaningless. Questions or comments about that? So, in a sense, the um, the enlightened the people of the Enlightenment really, if you do look at just the world and what is around you, they had they do have that part right in a sense that it's all a joke. Well, the Enlightenment guys did not conclude that it was a joke. It took the existentialists to do that. The Enlightenment guys thought they were doing important stuff. They thought that they were going to advance the world. In other words, they said to themselves. You know, the problem is that we have not used reason to solve man's problems. And that's what we're going to do. But it, it took the 19th century to produce existentialism. So after reason didn't work, then the existentialists came and said, it's, it is all meaningless. But there's nothing outside of this as well. That is what the existentialist says. Yeah. As I understand it. Is that, would it be accurate, Bill? Other questions or comments? Yes, sir. My impression of Abraham, he was a well-to-do guy, pastoral, and uh, if the record is accurate, he accomplished absolutely nothing with his life. And so he'd get up in the morning and he'd give some instruction to his shepherds what they're to do, and he'd sit around, and another day was gone. They didn't use the word boredom, but in your understanding of that kind of an environment, what would you call it? Walt, I, uh, it seems to me that the, the, the key ingredient that has infected our culture, infected me, is the removal of God from the center of the universe. If I 
if I understand Abraham, it seems to me his view of God is that he's everything. I can't, uh, I cannot, I cannot do anything in my life without thinking about it in the context of him and him in the middle of it. If that is so, then life isn't boring. What do you think? I don't want to try to anticipate where you're going to be taking us this morning. I've never heard you elaborate on this before, but are you suggesting to us that the Christian, by definition, cannot be bored? I'm suggesting no. Well, let me think about that. My, my question is, the boredom and Christianity, are, that's an oxymoron. I think, that, I think I would go there. comment. So what you're saying is if you're a Christian and your hope is in Christ, then you have purpose. And if you have purpose, you can't be bored. I think it's just a comment or, or something that I've deduced. Would you turn that off? When <laughs> he, this guy makes me nervous. Can you just talk more about the um, earthly religion, that last one that you're talking about, number seven? Because, I mean, a lot of people, um, you know, come to God through, they see nature and they know that, you know, there had to be a God behind this. So I don't see how that could be vanity. Yeah. Well, Lee, in his talk, thumped very hard the notion of election. And that in order for a man to know the God that we're speaking of, that God has to reveal himself to him in a way other than his creation. I can learn certain things about God through creation, but I cannot get myself to him. I cannot reason my way to heaven, if you will. Um, three-step process you called syllogy or syllogism then as Christians God is the center universe through his work he's renewed our heart we certainly have reason for purpose but here after the enlightenment and with existentialism and the bombardment of our society the message is and I can relate at times to though a Christian I experience boredom. So this has something, the third step is to the degree that that's there, there is a lack of focus. Well, and that's, Roger, what I want to talk about when we get to this, the back half of the page. Lee? Uh, you said that uh, the etymology of boredom is related to hopelessness and to the degree that the hope uh, is central to really demonstrating uh, 
the true aspects of Christianity, then you might think that that it is an oxymoron. And uh, back, uh, I spent some time with uh, some nomads in Mongolia when I was up there, and and uh, they have a simple life, but they're always busy. They're preparing for the winter. There, there's not enough that can be done to prepare for the winter to get enough skins together. There's always uh, defenses to put in or... Lee, Lee your talk is over. No. Yeah, sorry. Lord <laughs> <laughs> is a Christian. There's just stuff to lay up treasures in heaven. You can't be satisfied with what you got. I'm not satisfied. I'm with you, bro. Anyone else before we move on? Okay. On the issue of why is life vanity, why is it meaningless, I'm going to suggest to you four, uh, five reasons. One is the immutability, the fact that I cannot change things. Second reason, I am out of control. Bill, read chapter 9, verse 11, if you would. Please. Please. I again saw that under the sun, that the race is not to the swift, and the battle is not to the warriors, and neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability. For time and chance overtake them all. It is young thinking to believe that you're in control. It is naive thinking to believe that you're in control. There are a thousand things that can touch your life and there's not a thing you can do about it. The third reason why things are meaningless, the presence of evil. The fourth, the fact of death without assurance of an afterlife. And fifthly, the fact that God is inscrutable. I cannot understand him. Questions or comments about those? Uh, just had a question on that verse that was just read um, where it says, for time and chance overtake them all. What's the meaning of chance there? Because if God is sovereign and he controls everything, how does chance work into that? Yeah, I think that in the, if your if you're, uh, frame of reference is 
planet Earth, nothing else, then chance is the right word. If your frame of reference is ours, then you say chance is providence. Any other questions or comments? Jerry, I got a question. Um, in, that, in that first one we talked about you can't change things. Is that relative to the fact that basically from the beginning everything was done and was set and the, the, we're in the process of the unrolling of the scroll of life, I guess? Yeah, you know, I, I, um, I recently bought a new house. I love that house. It's fun. But as Walt pointed out last night, I'm going to die, and though that house might stand longer than I do, 100 years from now, 200 years from now, it's not going to be here. Just a little, little blip on the chart. Move on. Can a man be bored with God? Revelation 3, 15 through 18. Three, hello. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and eye salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. In these verses, Jesus identifies for us three types of men, the cold, the lukewarm, and the hot. Let me suggest to you that the, to the cold man, cold man, God is irrelevant. To the lukewarm man, God is unchallenging. And to the hot man, God is everything. Now, think with me about these words for a moment. If I understand what Jesus is saying, he is saying to us, I would prefer that you were in a whorehouse with a cold heart toward me than in church or a men's conference with a lukewarm heart toward me. Let me say that again. I would rather that you show up to a whorehouse with a cold heart then come to this conference with a lukewarm heart. Am I misinterpreting that, guys? Is that what he's saying? The worst place, the worst position a man can be in 
is to be lukewarm towards the sovereign of the universe. And guys, if you sense in your own spirit any lukewarmness without an intense, consuming desire to move towards hotness, I plead with you, get up and leave right now. Go to that whorehouse or the bar or wherever it is you'd like to be. You are far better off there than you are here. You're courting disaster. That is not an empty offer. It is a serious offer. If that is how you feel, go. You're in the wrong place. The chance of you finding Jesus is much, much better in that whorehouse than it is here if your heart is lukewarm without a desire to move. So it's the last call. Anybody who wants to go, this is it. Now, if you stay, you're going to accrue some accountability for yourself, so last chance. The guys who know him refer to Lee as God's spitball. Now he knows where it came from. Sorry, Lee. No, that's not true. I do not know a guy with a hotter heart toward God than Lee Yi. What did he say back there? We together? Okay. I want to compare and contrast the lukewarm guy with the hot guy. Let me suggest to you that the at the heart of the difference is where that guy takes, takes his risk. As Lee was alluding to in his talk on evangelism, where are you taking your risks? I'll give you another illustration. You go to work one morning. And there's a new boss. He's, you know, he's been there for three or four months, and people are starting to get the idea that this is not the kind of guy they really want to work for. He's uh, demanding, punitive. He's, uh, he believes that power is the ability to hurt people. He's a bully. You know the kind of guy I'm talking about. And... Um, you're in a meeting with, uh, you know, all the rest of the guys in the office. And um, he decides it's time to pick on you. And so he starts to uh, say that your integrity is in question, your professional ability is in question. And you and he both know that that's false. You know that he's lying about you that he's deliberately pushing your buttons. But you got blindsided, man. You didn't see it coming. And you're just reeling. 
And now the meeting's over, and you go home that evening, you tell your wife what happened, and you say to her, what should I do? What should you do? How do you respond to that situation? Thoughts? Let me frame the question. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I guess ideally, whether you can do that or not, is uh, let God be, be your defense in that situation. Would be one. What would that look like? Well, when you go talk to your wife, I guess, try to get it on a positive basis. That's where you put us. So I'm talking to my wife now. So am I, you know, blasting that guy or saying, wonder how God wants to use this? It's just all I can do is get my perspective. Because if, if I'm going to defend myself, that's probably the best defense I'll get. And uh, might not be adequate. Let me frame the question a little bit differently. If you are an independently wealthy man, would that influence your response to him? And if that is so, you've condemned yourself. There's not a man in this room who does not know the teaching that Jesus promises to meet your needs. And now he's put in the situation where he's got to take a risk. You have to decide whether or not you really believe that. So, do I play it safe and you know, go back and try and make up and kiss and make up and you know make smooth things over? Do I ignore the issue? Or do I do what I would do if I were a multimillionaire and hand him my resignation? And guys, you have identified your hope in that situation. And in a thousand little ways, every single day, that is what we are confronted with. There are hundreds of those kinds of conflicts that each of us faces every single day. Is my hope temporal or is my hope eternal? Now, we've bandied those words around a little bit in this conference, but let me, let me uh, give you some meat for that. Uh, Bill, if you'd read 2 Corinthians 4, the last three verses. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, 
but of the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So, if you can see it, it's temporal. If you can't see it, it's eternal. And the thesis of the Bible is one must be subordinated to the other. One will be subordinated to the other. It's not a question of if. It's a fact. And you and I make that choice every single day many, many times over. Am I going to work for the paycheck? Am I going to work to be the, an ambassador for Christ? The mindset is phenomenally different. How you approach your job and how you approach your coworkers is phenomenally different. How much thought have you given to which of those you are? Guys, I, I encourage you to do it now before the crisis hits. Because as Bill has read from 2 Corinthians 4, that eternal weight of glory is far beyond any comparison. God is offering you a deal that no one else is offering you. The problem is it's deferred compensation. Now, when we talk about these things, risk-taking and hope and all this sort of stuff, we're really talking about two theological words, faith and hope. And those two words are very closely intertwined. And I want to take a minute or two to uh, dissect them out before we put them back together again. Bill, if you'd read Hebrews 11.1. 1. This is a verse that most of you know. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Notice that he uses the word hope in his definition of faith. They are very closely bound together, those two words. Faith is what I believe. Hope is what motivates me to act on what I believe. Say it again. Faith is what I believe. Hope is what motivates me to act on it. Let me suggest to you what is not different about the lukewarm and the hot man. What is not different about those two men is the content of their faith. We can get 20 guys, and we'll just arbitrarily say these guys are all lukewarm and these guys are hot. And just for the sake of the illustration, we're right. These guys are hot. These guys are lukewarm. And we can give them a theology test. And within 5%, their theologies are identical. They believe 
the same things. That is, Jesus is the Son of God, died for my sins, I prayed to receive Him, He's going to take me to heaven. That's the, the Christian mantra, isn't it? My question to you is, guys, will that belief get you to heaven? I don't know of a Christian organization where I could go ask that question and not be laughed off the podium. Of course that'll get you to heaven. Of course. But if that's true, then what I said earlier is not true. I said earlier that the difference between the lukewarm and the hot guy is risk-taking where he takes his risks, not the content of his faith. Now, which is it? Is it the content of my faith, or is it where my hope is? Come back at me. Questions or comments about that? Guys, this is a strategically critical issue that if you have not thought through, you may find yourself in a world of hurt. Bryce. Hey, Jerry. Um, like in thinking about, I would think there would be a difference between the faith in regards to James that the person who's hot, he has a living faith and therefore it's followed up by works. And the person who is lukewarm, he has the faith that's basically dead and isn't producing works. Yeah, Bryce, and I say that to the, the uh, again, we'll just arbitrarily call him a lukewarm man. And he says, yeah, but Bryce, I, uh, grace covers that. I get forgiven. That's my get-out-of-jail card. And you hot guys, you sin too, don't you? Yeah, hot guys sin. Well... What's the difference between you and me? Checkmate. In uh, in my mind, the thing is that you can't you like to have one scripture that should negate the truth of another. And the facts are that the word makes no apologies when it says that faith without works is dead. So the facts are that you say you have faith, but you have no works. Maybe you really don't have faith. Maybe what you've got is a profession or something that maybe it sprouted up, man, but it dried up a long time ago. The scripture makes no apologies for that. Yeah, amen to that. Jerry, simply for the sake of argument, what, what then was produced by the thief on the cross? I'm sorry? What then was produced as evidence of his alive faith as he hung on the cross next to Christ? Yeah, if you... If you uh, Lee alluded to Luke 19, that parable about the minas. And... Uh, you put all of those parables about... Uh, 
what reward looks like and so on. Matthew 20, Matthew 25, Luke 19. And you deduce that the issue is not talent, it's not time and service, but it's faithfulness to opportunities. And so we have, you and I have no idea how many opportunities that thief had. We know he had at least one. And Jesus says, that's good enough for me. That's a bingo. Any other questions or comments? Question on the uh, uh, the warm Christian. Where where would you say his hope is? A lukewarm Christian. Lukewarm Christian. I would say that lukewarm Christians' hope is where the pagans' hope is. Or divided, at best. But I'm here to tell you, it is far more in the direction of where the pagans is. Far more. Now guys, we have unbundled faith and hope. We've dissected them out and talked about some differences. What you have to do now is rebundle them and put them back together and your faith is this thing off? Okay. And your faith and your hope have to point in the same direction. The lukewarm guy has a faith pointing this way and his hope is pointing that way. If you are going to be hot for God, they have to point in the same direction. Now, I have thought if I would ever give a talk on steps to take to ensure that you go to hell, this would be the verse I'd teach out of. Because these guys, how frightening this is, these people think that they're rich. They think all is well. And I think to myself, that's me. I, I think all is well. And if these verses do not put the fear of God into you, I don't know what will. A man who is not drop dead afraid of God is in big trouble. He's a whisker away from disaster. You know, I tell people this, and I, I almost invariably get these weird stares. And I'm talking about Christian people. I tell them, I love my wife. She's my best friend. She's the best woman I know on the planet. Man, she is a gem. If I were doing it all over again and I could choose any woman I know and women I don't know, I'd pick her. 
Now, my wife sleeps very well at night. But it has nothing to do with what I just said. She sleeps well at night because she knows I'm afraid of God. Guys, if you think you are immune to the sins of the world, you're kidding yourself. I mean, what was it? A couple years ago, Hugh Grant. You know, he's, he, he's shacked up with Liz, Elizabeth Hurley. Good-looking woman. And then he's found in a car on the side of a road with a skanky hooker. That's us. That's men. That is how we are. And if you think your love for the wife is enough, you're kidding yourself. Now, Winston's given me... How much time, Winston? Well, I'm done. Zero. Be, be warm, be filled. Uh, I didn't get as long as ye... If there's any consolation, Winston's just told me that he will be here for the question and answer at four o'clock. I think we start at four thirty. At four thirty, so here's your chance. You get from four thirty on. Excellent. Thank you.